welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico, and I am coming to you, well, live. Uh, I am recording this uh, beginning of the Guelph Politicast live, of course, uh, from my office, my at home, where I have spent the large part of the last week and a half uh, sick with COVID-19. I did the rapid test. I was feeling... Well, I was feeling symptomatic, <laughs> sore throat, and uh, the sore throat turned into a cough and turned into other cold-like symptoms, and I took a rapid test, and lo and behold, I did have COVID-19. Um, even though this, you know, I, I have been generally wearing my mask, actually, I've been completely wearing my mask out and about in stores and at city council, but my sister was home a couple of weekends ago. And she had an unfortunate counter at a work conference with someone who was not mask, uh, masking. And uh, they had COVID-19 and spread it to her. She spread it to me. Fortunately, I have had what you would call mild symptoms. I would not call them mild symptoms, though. Uh, COVID-19, even when it's quote-unquote mild is not a great experience. And indeed, if you listen to this week's end credits, which, which I recorded a couple of days before this, you can definitely tell uh, that my mild case of COVID was not very mild when it came to uh, my chosen vocation of talking on the radio. Um, and indeed, you know, uh, maintaining these long periods of conversation um, is not great, uh, although I, I have <laughs> unfortunately gone ahead, and, and this was, you know, weeks before I um, before I caught COVID I had booked a week of, uh, of interviews starting tomorrow uh, <laughs> so that's going to be fun uh, it's also going to be fun recording this week's Open Sources, uh, which is another hour on the radio in which I talk although uh, Scotty Hertz does his fair share of talking too. So, all this is a long and winded way of saying, uh, you know, I, I had to take steps, obviously, to uh, to turn down the workload, but also um, to explain why there isn't a, a really full and complete episode of the Politicast this week. Usually, I even if I'm not on top of booking guests, I can pull something together in time. For Wednesday, but uh, you know, just the, uh, the the nature of having COVID, which you know they, they never mention as a symptom the fatigue. Um, so you know, most of last week when I had the symptoms, and when I t was testing positive for COVID, you'd get maybe two good hours of work in the morning, and then two good hours of work in the afternoon, and then uh, the rest of the time you're kind of. Uh, struggling to stay awake uh still feeling a bit of that fatigue but fortunately most of it has passed so again long story short uh there wasn't as much time to prepare our usual episode of of the politicast having said that uh it is why i sort of keep things in reserve and this is one of them last fall uh, for end credits, we did a string of interviews with directors who were bringing movies to the Guelph Film Festival last fall. One of them was a filmmaker named Elmaya Tailfeathers, and she is an actress and a filmmaker. And her movie at 
last year's Guelph Film Festival was called Gimami Bitsen, The Meaning of Empathy, which is a documentary about uh, the Kaine First Nation in Alberta who are battling, like so many communities in this country, the pandemic of opioid and substance abuse. They obviously uh, face a number of difficulties that are familiar with communities like Guelph, but are also unique to First Nations communities who long have track records of alcohol and substance abuse stemming mainly from years, decades of generational trauma. So they are already battling a lot of systemic inequities before uh, along comes the opioid crisis. And all of this is captured in Gimami Bitsen and uh, its director, El Maya Tailfeathers, who, um, whose mother is the main character of the film because her mother is a doctor trying to produce harm reduction programming on the reserve in order to save uh, people who do have substance abuse issues. So a portion of this interview, which you know was was fairly long because uh, it's a long movie, it's a well over two hours long, but there was so much ground to cover, and uh, it was a, a rare treat and pleasure to be able to talk to uh, Elmaya Tailfeathers about it. So um, the nature of end credits, it was you know there was maybe a twenty minute hole to fill. So I've been waiting for an opportunity to sort of roll out the full interview because I, I do find it very interesting and very informative, and she was uh, wonderful to talk to, Elmaya Tailfeathers. So uh, that is this week's episode of the Guelph Politicast. I am going to uh, first run a clip from the trailer for uh, Gimami Bitsen, and then I will uh, roll out that audio of my interview with Elmaya Tailfeathers, and uh, we will... Uh, make that this week's episode of the Guelph Politicast. This is home, Ghana, otherwise known as Kainai, or the Blood Reserve. Nestled in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, Kainai is the largest reserve in Canada. Beginning in 2014, Fentanyl flooded the illicit drug trade on the reserve. This new reality has forced our community to approach addiction in radically different ways. Hello. The difficulty was in convincing people that harm reduction is the route that we have to take. By no means is it celebrating addiction, but what it does is it celebrates the lives of people without judgment. Our group here is looking at expanding what we have to do to help our community heal. There you go. I could save a life. It's very heart-wrenching when you go on a call and people are breathless. And we can't sit back and expect things to change without doing the work. So Al Maya Tailfeathers, thank you so much for joining me today. Okay, thank you for having me. Um, I, I wanted to make sure... Uh, I, I do normally like to make sure I can pronounce things right, but for the title of your movie, I wanted to do it on the record as, as you were listening and you can proctor me. Um, but it is Key Manny Bitson. How did I do? <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, Gimma B. Bitson. 
give mommy bits in. Okay. Uh, see, that, I'm glad that was on the record now. Now I <laughs> thank you for trying. I appreciate it. <laughs> there, there is a, a specific meaning behind the word, though. Um, and I know the movie goes into um, great detail ab- about uh, its meaning and its meaning to you, but can you just sort of uh, talk about it a bit? What, what does Gimani Bitsen mean um, both to the film and, and to um, the, your, your people in Alberta? Um, sure. Well, I, I am Blackfoot from Ghana or Kainai um, in Southern Alberta. It's the largest reserve in Canada. Um, and Gimabi Bitsen is a Blackfoot word. Um, it's also a, a value or a teaching um, that uh, essentially means to, to have empathy, to give kindness, um, especially to those who are struggling. Um, and so in, in the context of the film, Gimabi Bitsen is about having empathy for our people who are living with substance use disorder and our people who are in recovery. Um, and it, it's also uh, a way of thinking about harm reduction through an Indigenous lens, um, because harm reduction is, is, is a means of uh, approaching addiction through empathy. Mm-hmm. How long was this in the works? Because I was so enthralled with like the various stories and the various people that we meet along the way. I, I wasn't paying too much attention to the title cards, but I do remember at one point, there was a date stamp on one scene and it was like May 2017. So this has been in the works for a while. How long were you working on this movie? Uh, this film took five years to make. So um, it was quite the journey. We, uh, we were actually filming for close to four years. And then the edit was, was almost a year uh, because of COVID. And uh, I spent a year developing the film. I don't expect you to have the exact answer, but maybe you could ballpark it. How much footage did you get? How many hours? Oh, uh, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> hundreds, hundreds of hours. Um, and uh, we had to kind of condense it all into, into a two hour, into a two hour film. Mm-hmm. And again, it, you know, it covers so much ground, uh, you know, and, and there any one of sort of these topics can sort of make their own movie. You know, you could focus on, you know, George and Leia's story and that could be a movie. You could focus on like the, the politics of, you know, getting funding and establishing these programs. That could be a movie. I guess what, what, what was kind of your guide in terms of telling the story? Um, how, like how did you balance all these various elements to try and tell one coherent story that covered as many bases as possible? Uh, well, yeah, that's a really great question. Um, the The opioid crisis uh, or, or fentanyl hit our communities uh, seven years ago. Um, and my mother, Dr. Esther Tailfeathers, uh, has been on the front lines of that crisis. And so through her, I've heard about all of the things she's experienced and have witnessed all of the community mobilization that's happening um, to try and find solutions. And um, I wanted to be able to document that process to show all of the hard work that's happening in the community, to show the experiences of people working on the front lines, um, but also to humanize the people who are living with substance use disorder um, and to share their experiences through an empathetic um, and human lens. 
And, uh, and I also wanted to be able to show that our community has a vast diversity of lived experiences and opinions, especially when it comes to how we treat addiction. Um, and we're also up against so many barriers. Um, many of them are, are um, institutional or, um, or policy level sort of barriers, funding level barriers, but also many of them are, these barriers are also about you know, structural and systemic racism um, and, and inequality that all indigenous people in Canada face. And so I had to try and put all of that together into a, a two hour long film that was digestible and understandable and relatable to a broad audience. Um, and yeah, it was certainly a challenge. Um, and that's why the edit took so <laughs> long because there were many iterations of the film and, and our first cut was like close to five hours long. Um, but it ultimately came down to trying to include as many voices as possible and trying to include a, you know, a diversity of voices from within the community. If someone were to come to you and say, hey, could you use all that footage, like turn this into like a five part or six part series? Um, I mean, is, is that kind of something you'd be interested in or does it like maybe having this in a two hour package kind of have like a, a, a succinct kind of punch to it where that, that might be lost if you're doing something a bit longer, multi parts or I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I've toyed around with the idea of trying to turn it into, into a series so that we can kind of get into these, into these topics and on, a, on a deeper level. Um, but in terms of just giving audiences something that they can kind of understand, you know, all of these, these, these various issues that are at play that contribute to the larger narrative, I felt like, you know, a, a feature-length documentary can achieve that in the sense that you can just hand it to someone or, you know, a classroom, a community um, and say, you know, here, watch this two hours and, and learn what you learn from it. Mm -hmm. How did your mom feel about being a main character in your movie? Oh, she really didn't want to be. <laughs> um, she's a very humble individual who commits all of her time and energy largely to our community. Um, and, and so she agreed to, be in the film just so long as I included uh, the work of, of so many others. And so um, she was she was very supportive in terms of making the film. Um, and her one condition on in participating was that I show that she's not the only one doing this this work. Mm -hmm. She seems like a busy woman, um, but I mean, all people in 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 this community who are working in healthcare and working in addiction and treatment are seem to be very busy people. Um, has there been any, you know, since you sort of finished uh, filming the movie, has there been any change in, in your community? Has there, you know, I guess maybe there was a note at the end with, you know, that in 2020, the Alberta government did cut funding to the Arches Center. And now it's, it's kind of running a, a sort of skeletal operation. But I mean, the opioid crisis, you, you said it goes back seven years in um, amongst the, the Blackfoot. Um, this is something that's kind of become more and more relevant to white settler communities in the last few years, especially since the start of the pandemic. Has there been sort of like any reflexive action that, you know, now governments sort of see the, the, the way opioids and addiction is working in, you know, our urban communities is there, does, is that having a reciprocal effect in in uh, indigenous communities? 
Yeah, it's um because Kainai is in southern Alberta, uh, they fall under the provincial jurisdiction of the, the United Conservative Party, the Jason Kenney government. Um, and the Jason Kenney government has cut funding to so many harm reduction services and agencies, including um, the supervised consumption site in Lethbridge, Alberta. Um, and many of the people who utilize that, that site were from our community. And since the closure of that site, um, we've witnessed the highest numbers of deaths due to drug poisoning or fatal overdose. Um, and that directly correlates with, with, the, with the closure of that site. Um, but further to that, um, the pandemic has, has exacerbated the problem because people are forced to, to use alone in many cases. And as we know, using alone can often result in, in a fatal overdose. Um, and so that's that's been a, a huge struggle for our community, and the grief is is felt everywhere. Um, however, there there have been some positives, like the um, the uh, safe withdrawal site or the detox that was that was founded uh, uh, on Kainai during the making of the film um, has has expanded. It's received um, some more long term funding. They've been able to open um, aftercare, so when people come to the detox. They can stay as long as they need to until they can go into treatment. And when they finish treatment, they can come back and stay at the detox in the aftercare wing, um, which is such a necessary service because a lot of people, um, you know, struggle with finding safe, stable, steady housing after they after they leave treatment. And so it's a way of ensuring that they can um you know, experience long-term recovery. Um, and so that's been a really wonderful thing to witness. Yeah, and to hear you explain, you know, kind of what's going on in Kenai, and I, I hear those stories in, in my own community, which is predominantly white, predominantly settler, um, and it's, it's a lot of the same issues, a lot of the same circumstances, people using alone because of the pandemic, uh, people having nowhere to go once they get treatment, they need somewhere to go, community groups struggling the uniqueness and sort of the indigenous example though, and your movie, I don't know if it directly addresses this, but it's something I took away from it is this kind of circular nature of, you know, 500 years of colonialism. And we've kind of done this to indigenous people. And now so many of them are struggling with drug and alcohol addiction. And then they go looking for help. And the settler community is like, no, no, it's your fault. You're a drug addict or an alcoholic. We're not going to give you help. And they continue to struggle. And then, you know, the community actually makes strides to address the issue, create great programs, get people help. And then they hit the wall again. And the government says, no, no, we're not funding this. And like the, the abuse is very cyc cyclical. Um, I imagine that probably stuck out to you as well. Yeah, I, I, when I started this film, I had a very novice understanding of what harm reduction is, and um, also just the, the the frameworks within you know how 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 addiction is is treated. Um, and so it was a, a major learning experience for me, and and encountering all of this knowledge and and, and understanding how um, there's you know policy bar barriers and systemic barriers and, and often funding barriers that are that are government uh, 
rooted in government and rooted in um, certain attitudes towards indigenous people and in that we created these problems, we need to fix them ourselves. But the, the truth of the matter is, is that the reason our people are living with such high rates of addiction is because of uh, historic trauma um, and, and ongoing trauma due to colonialism. You know, we had the, the residential school system, which left a, a last, lasting legacy on our people. We had the 60s scoop. We had um, so many other things that happened even before residential schools. Um, and so we're living with that historic trauma, but we're also living with the reality of, of um, inequity when it comes to, to the basic needs of our, of our people um, that a lot of, I think, non-Indigenous Canadians might take for granted. Um, and so in this film, it was really important to be able to, to highlight that, to show that, you know, we can't talk about Indigenous people and addiction without talking about colonialism and the realities that, that our people face. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's a very complicated um, conversation. And I, I, I really think that it's so important for us to think about it on a, on a human level and understand that the people who are living with substance use disorder are, they're human beings and, mm. and, and they deserve to be treated with dignity. And they almost seem surprised when you propose dignity as a treatment. There, there was the scene where I think it was your mom who was like reviewing this program in Vancouver where uh, it's it's basically a, a safe consumption site, but for alcohol, because so many people can't afford a bottle of wine, they will drink Listerine or hand sanitizer, which does irreparable harm to their, their digestive systems. Um, and they're watching this video and they're asked, like, what do you think of this program? And they're like, yeah, that's a pretty good program. And it, it just struck me as like there's a tone of surprise in their reaction. It's like, why don't we treat you like a human being? How about that for a change? And it's, you know, something that simple is so shocking, that idea of dignity. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think what's really important uh, just in general is, is ensuring that people who actually live with substance use disorder or who are in recovery are centered in these conversations around how we find solutions because they have the lived experience and the understanding of, you know, these are our barriers. These are the struggles that we face and these are the tools that we need to be able to overcome those barriers. Um, and so uh, I, th I think that that particular scene or that moment is really important for that reason. But also um, I think it's important to think about the ways that um, shame and stigma and sometimes <laughs> organized religion um, impact our, our ideologies or our thinking around substance use. And, um, and there's this, you know, very uh, long held understanding that abstinence is the only way forward and people need to just quit cold Turkey. Otherwise they're, you know, shameful human beings. Um, and, and I think we just need to stop thinking like that because it's not solving any problems. Reinforce because I think one of the communities on the reservation is next to a settler community uh, that's predominantly Mormon who do not partake in alcohol as part of their sort of religious um, teachings. And uh, I, there's a morality piece to that as well. But of course, because they see drinking uh, alcohol as a as a violation of morality that automatically gets detached to the indigenous people, their neighbors, uh, the same way. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's very it's very complicated, and we see that with I think a lot of 
these border towns. Um, when I say border towns, I mean towns that are on yeah. the borders of, of reserves in Canada. So we see a lot of that sort of um, ideological conflict. Um, but you know, alcohol isn't isn't part of our our traditional culture either. That's right. Um, there is the same sort of morality conversation even within our community. So, uh, but when it comes to towns like Cardston, there's this this uh, double-edged sword, which is the the morality conversation, but also you know his racism, which has existed for generations from you know within that community and and the the cultural conflicts that exist there. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about because I, I was reading some of the other interviews you'd done about the film. Um, you did not want this to be sort of, I guess, tragedy based and and trauma based. You can't get past though, like some of the things he suffered, and that they're in the movie. Like people are profiled who are themselves survivors of residential school, survivors of abuse. Um, it, I guess, how do you how do you cover those topics, and while at the same time not making your movie about them? Uh, well, yeah, it's it's like you can't avoid you can't avoid that because that's 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 part of the story. Um, I think when when i say that i don't that i didn't want the film to be about you know trauma and tragedy i mean that i want audiences especially indigenous audiences to walk away with a sense of hope and a sense of pride in who we are um i wanted non-indigenous audiences to be able to watch the film and recognize the strength and beauty of my community and all of the hard work that's happening there um, because i think stopping at trauma and tragedy um, doesn't generate action. Um, mm-hmm. And so at the end of this, I want people to, to, to want to take action, to want to support harm reduction initiatives, to want to challenge um, our elected representatives to, to, to be um, more empathetic towards people who live with substance use disorder. And, and, um, and I think that doing that through an empathetic lens and, and through a human lens um, offers the opportunity for audiences to relate to people from within my community who are struggling um, on a, on a human level. And you yourself get involved, like you are on camera quite a bit. Um, and I, you know, we, granted documentaries aren't news. We kind of confuse the two. Uh, sometimes we think, you know, cause documentaries about real life, which are treated like a news story. I guess the question is, you were always going to be invested in the story. These are your people. Your mom is a main character. Did you realize maybe how much you would get invested in these stories as you were starting the film? No, uh, initially I was, I, I, I didn't want to be part of the film. I didn't think it was really necessarily appropriate, but um, I realized that as a community member who was asking other community members to, you know, be vulnerable in front of the camera and share their stories that uh, it, it made sense for me to also place my, myself in that position of vulnerability and, and, and be in front of the camera Um and I, I also, I think, made my mother a little bit more comfortable um, and my other family members more comfortable if I was there in front of the camera with them. Um, and, I, I, you know, there's documentary has this history where, uh, I've, you know, outsider filmmakers coming into marginalized communities and extracting stories and then leaving. <laughs> um, and that's that's, you know, not 
my process as a community member and, and someone who's documenting, you know, their family's journey. Um, and so it, it felt like I needed to be part of it. Um, and we also lost my, my cousin um, mm. during the making of the film. And so the film itself became quite personal in that sense. Um, and so I wanted to be able to share that journey of grief and that journey of understanding how harm reduction could have saved her life and how shame and stigma kill. Um, and so, yeah, for all of those reasons, I became part of the film in that, in that respect. I mean, that's an incredible scene because, you know, we do bring in certain expectations about keeping journalistic distance uh, between subject and person covering that subject. And it, it comes at an interesting point in the film to have this, this point where the director pauses and sort of says, no, no, I'm affected by this too. Um, and here's how it's affecting me. You've, you've been sitting here for, I, I think by that point, it's, you know, 80 or 90 minutes watching all of the, all these stories unfold. And then to it, there, there's kind of like a relief valve in that sequence where it's you and your grandparents to talk about how everything we've seen in the film so far is pers has personally affected you as well, which I found very interesting and, and touching as well. Well, thank you. Yeah. It's uh, it, uh, we decided to, you know, save that story for, for later on and, and have people kind of get to know the community and, and these other participants first. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, I mean, it's not entirely up to you to decide how your film gets viewed in, in the years to come, but for, for your own personal hopes, are you hoping that it sort of is like a time capsule or I guess kind of like a snapshot of, of where things stand right now, that it's not kind of like a, I don't know, a, a sign that Another, another sign along the road in this circular <laughs> systemic racism that this was the start of another circle, um, that it's more maybe more of a, a capturing a point where things started to change. Uh, I guess, how do you hope this, this film like sits in kind of that historical lens? Well, yeah, I, I hope that it, it serves as a, as a document to this really important moment. Um, initially I, I thought about it that way as well. Like I needed to just document this work that's happening so that people understand that it did happen. And this is why these changes are happening. Um, you know, the, the community mobilization um, years and years of community effort is what, is what it took to, to build this detox on the reserve and this detox or the safe withdrawal site, which is known as bringing the spirit home has literally saved hundreds of lives and, and helped our community rebuild and heal. Um, and that site wouldn't have been built if it wasn't for all of that community mobilization. So I wanted to document that. So, <clears throat> you know, we can reflect on this moment and say like our, our community did really good work and really important work despite immeasurable barriers. <clears throat> and um, I also wanted to document um, the shame and the stigma and um, the horrific racism that exists in Southern Alberta that's directed at our people. And, um, and I wanted to do so in a way that um, hopefully uh, challenges people to think differently and, and, and to understand that, you know, the people that, that they see struggling on the streets of Lethbridge 
are there because of residential schools. They're there because of, of, of the trauma that our people have experienced and the ongoing poverty and racism that our people experience. Um, and those, those barriers and that pain is why those people are there. And um, Canadian settlers benefit directly from that history. Um, and so it's, it's, it's really important that we, we consistently keep that in our, our cultural awareness and understanding of, of, of addiction and Indigenous people. No one chooses to fall asleep in the doorway. Yeah. <laughs> in the middle of winter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to just touch on your other uh, vocation as an actor. Um, people obviously are listening to this, so the, the audio, but if they were to see your face, they would probably recognize your face from movies. You're in Blood Quantum. You're in a new movie that's out right now called Night Raiders. And it strikes me, and I, I wanted to get your feedback on this, it strikes me maybe the only way to get white settler people like myself to understand the literal dystopia that indigenous people have lived under for 500 years is to project it through this fictionalized dystopia with zombies and uh, authoritarian governments and hover drones and, and all this. Um, is, is that fair? Is, I, I mean, are, are we kind of having a breakthrough moment by projecting the literal dystopia through the fictional dystopia? Yeah, absolutely. I think both, uh, Dennis Goulet, the director of Night Raiders, and Jeff Barnaby, <clears throat> the director of Blood Quantum, are, are doing uh, incredible things in terms of taking, you know, historic trauma, historic violence, and placing it in a dystopian future that I think allows for both settler and Indigenous audiences to have um, to have the opportunity to kind of think about it in a different way. Uh, with Night Raiders, everything that happens in that film comes from a place of truth. And so <clears throat> I think it, it's, it's doing a great deal in terms of helping settler audiences understand that this is the history that exists in, in this place, this land that we share now. Um, and this is truth. And, 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 you know, if it takes placing it in the future and some sort of dystopian film for people to understand that, then, then that's the way forward. And, um, and I, yeah, I, I think it is coming at a very timely moment. You know, this, this last summer, um, there were hundreds of unmarked graves uncovered Indigenous children at, at residential schools. And our communities knew that those graves existed and those stories stayed alive within our communities because there were many families who never saw their loved ones again. Um, and so this, this film came about at, at, in, in such a timely moment. And, and I think Canadian audiences are maybe a little bit more willing to accept and understand the, the magnitude of the grief that our people have experienced and continue to experience. Um, and, and I think Night Raiders serves as this beautiful vessel of story um, and, and human experience. Well, speaking of the audience and maybe to wrap up, um, you know, your movie is not the only uh, indigenous uh, story at, at this year's 12th film festival. So what, what role do you think like film festivals play in terms of like getting the word out and bringing audiences together to experience these stories? Um, 
you know, how, how important is, to, is getting your film in front of film festival audiences? Oh, it's so important. I, I'm, you know, I, I truly miss um, the in-person festivals. I, I got to go to FNC here in Montreal um, this last weekend and I saw Caroline Monet's uh, debut feature, Bootlegger. Um, and it was such a wonderful experience to be back in a theater and, and with a film festival audience because you're with uh, a particular audience that that really appreciates cinema and appreciates the moving image and 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 story on screen and I think it's just so wonderful to be able to to share story in that way um, and festivals are kind of what what build the buzz and the momentum around films when they when they go out for larger theatrical release um, and so yeah it's it's so important to be able to celebrate film with festival audiences. Well, it was so great to be able to share this time with you, Elmaya Tailfeathers. Um, I, I, before we started recording, I spoke of my a great reverence for, for your documentary, and uh, I hope everyone in Guelph gets a chance to check it out. So thank you for all your time today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And once again, that was Elmaya Tailfeathers, and you can watch her movie, Gimami Bitsen, The Meaning of Empathy on the National Film Board's website, which you can find at nfb.ca. It is part of the subscription service. A lot of the NFB's films are available to stream for free. Unfortunately, Gimami Bitsen is not one of them, although you can subscribe easily enough to their campus programs, um, which lets you access, I think it is $39.95 per year, so that's not too shabby, uh, less than $4 a month when you work it all out. Although, if you are a student or a teacher with either the Upper Grand District School Board or the Wellington Catholic District School Board, you do get access to campus for free. Uh, so you can check it out. If you would like to see Elmaya Tailfeathers as an actress, though, um, two of her recent movies, which are uh, really great, Blood Quantum and Night Raiders, you can now stream them both on Crave. So... Uh, we will be back to normal with, uh, hopefully, or more normal, or as normal as uh, previous considerations allowed. That'll be for next week, though. In the meantime, that's it for this edition of the Guelph Politicast. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded at CFRU, Guelph Campus and Community Radio, and you can find that at CFRU.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you'll get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram, and you can send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you'd like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca, where we will have a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you next week, a real new episode this time. And we will see you next time.